Isaiah chapter 11. As you turn there, this is one of those passages that we were talking about a minute ago, where we see, or the prophet Isaiah rather, sees a picture of Jesus that we have the privilege of knowing comes twice. That we see him envisioning both the second coming of Jesus and describing his character in the first coming of Jesus and bringing peace to the world. The prophet Isaiah is looking out at time incomprehensibly, as the Bible says, not really understanding everything that he's writing, but knowing the God he's writing about. And he's looking out, and John Piper puts it this way. He says, when you look at a mountain range, from a distance, you see one big mass. But often, as you get closer and closer, there's multiple peaks to the mountain range. And he said, this Isaiah is one who is standing at a distance. And we've been graced as the children of God now, the Gentiles grafted in to be slightly closer in time. And sometimes we're able to differentiate that there are multiple peaks and sometimes we're not. And sometimes we're seen. But, but one thing is clear. We get to see Jesus. And in texts like this in the Old Testament, the goal was that we would see Jesus. So, let's dive into Isaiah chapter 11 here. And we're going to read the whole chapter. And then we'll dig deep. Let's read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf, and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, their, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the, on the adder's den. Then they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. 
and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from, from Pathos, Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And may God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading and the hearing of his word. So we come to this text, Isaiah chapter 11. This is a classic Christmas text. Well, at least the first half is. Most pastors really like that part about Jesse's stump and the shoot that will come from it. Clearly a messianic uh, picture of Jesus. Jesus makes the claim that this is him. You can identify all the times that he says this. But this is written in the context of a kingdom that is going to land on the earth and be present while the enemies of God still exist. That's the context here of this thing. In, in chapter 10, if you, if you read through Isaiah chapter 10, he's just talked about how Assyria is a tool in the hands of the Lord, and a tool should not talk back to its master, because it's going to be thrown out. A tool can't do anything other than what it's designed to do, and a tool should not be proud. And oh, poor Assyria was proud. And they end up being wiped out. If you know anything about Israel's history, they end up being wiped out. And Babylon comes along. And Babylon is the one that leads uh, Judah into exile. And they end up coming back uh, with Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah was in the Hebrew Bible as one book. Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you ever sit down to read it, I'd read it all together. Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's all one book. And the... Uh, it's the return of the people of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city, and all that's missing is the king. Isaiah sees that. He sees that coming. A highway from Assyria to Jerusalem, where the people of God will be brought back. He sees that coming. And he sees it coming. What's wild is he sees it coming before they're ever exiled. He sees that the exile's coming. He sees that 
that Assyria is going to come back, that they're going to come back, and that they're that the Israelites are going to come back into the land, they're going to rebuild the temple, they're going to rebuild the city, Jerusalem, and all they're going to be lacking is a king. And he sees that king, the stump, uh, the root from the stump of Jesse, getting ready to come up. How marvelous this picture is. The root of the stump of Jesse is coming, the Spirit of God will rest on him, and you've got this character introduction there in verses 1 through 5. And then you've got the introduction or the picture of the kingdom in verses 5 through 9. And this kingdom is amazing. And do you see it? Like everything is at peace. Everything's at peace. This kingdom is incredible. And then you've got the picture of what's going to happen with these two characters that have been introduced. So you need to think of this chapter as introducing two characters, this, the king and the kingdom. Those are your two characters. And then what that looks like is what follows. This is an incredible portion of Scripture. It's easy to get sidetracked. So in order to stave off getting sidetracked in theological discourse, we want to focus on the idea that this is about Jesus and his kingdom. So let's, let's go Jesus first. Um, Isaiah gives us a beautiful picture of how to handle theology. This is, this is the way. You always start Jesus first. This is, this is the way to do theology. Jesus first. So he starts with Jesus first in these first five verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root, and a branch from his fruits, from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesus is going to come from the line of Jesse and he's going to be a branch also called a vine in John chapter 15. Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you will bear no fruit, but in me you will bear much fruit. So he is saying, he's the stump. He's the, he's the branch from the stump. The stump is obvious, the King David uh, reference there. Jesse was David's father. The branch shall come from him. This is a, the reason it doesn't say, the reason it doesn't say the branch will come from the stump of David is because David was a type for the branch that was to come. So it claims this, out of the stump of Jesse will come the type, the, the authentic one, the king who is promised will sit on the throne for eternity, whose kingdom will be eternal. And so this branch will come. Jesus claims this branch. And then we get some character traits of Jesus here in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. I love that again. You can see that in the Gospel of John. The Spirit of God literally flies down and lands on his shoulder. It's an incredible scene. He gets baptized. The Spirit comes down, lands on his shoulder in the form of a dove, says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus has the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So Jesus both knows and gets it. He, he knows it and he gets it. That's wisdom and understanding together. The best way I can think about it is this isn't an issue of um, 
discernment and you can throw in multiple words, discernment and knowledge, knowledge and practice. You can throw in all these words and they always seemed really confusing to me because you're looking at nuances in the English language. In reality, what the, the prophet Isaiah is telling you is Jesus knows everything by the Spirit. He knows everything. His Spirit rests on him. He is one with the Spirit. We did that study of the Holy Spirit last year, and we saw Jesus and the Holy Spirit are frequently used interchangeably. So he, he rests on him. And then you've got the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And this is, is Isaiah's way of saying, not only does he know all the stuff and know what to do and how to do it, but he gets it. And he gets you. He understands when you're tired. He, he understands when you're exhausted. He understands when you're angry. He understands when you're struggling. He, he understands when you're happy. He, he gets it. You've, you've met those people who, when you're having a rough day, you walk, you walk, they ask you how you're doing, and you say, I'm having a rough day, and they, they just get it. Like there's, they respond the right way because it's just they get it. They're, yeah, I mean, we all have rough days. Get it. That's, those people are a balm to your soul. Same people who, who get when you're excited, who rejoice with you when you rejoice, who when you're going, I did this, they're like, yeah! Like when my kid brings me a picture and goes, look at what I drew, Daddy. And I go, that's beautiful. And I put it on my desk where I can see it. It's not. But I, but I get it. But I, I get it. I get what they are doing. I get it. And the Spirit rests on him. Then he's got this, the Spirit of counsel and might. So not only does Jesus know and get it, he also knows what to do. And he's got the power to handle it. He knows what to do, and he's got the power to handle it. Then we've got next the, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know how you can see, know about, and hear from God and not be a little terrified. Just think about it for a second. You, you ought to be afraid when you realize that there's a God who is as big as the one we know, who has created all things, who is right now sustaining your breath and life, and the breath and life of every other person and thing and being that is alive, who is currently holding together your molecules consciously holding together your molecules, not absent-mindedly, not like, oh, I set that and then I walked away, but consciously, actively holding together your molecules, keeping you together, that God is incredibly personal, incredibly intimate, incredibly present in your life, and He is the one you worship I don't know how you can, you can recognize that and not be a little bit afraid. I mean, really afraid. He is that big. Now, he's loving and tender, and he grabs us and holds us close, but he is terrifying. 
And so I, I don't want you to explain away, I don't, want, I don't want to try to explain away the fear of the Lord. Yes, it means reverential awe, yes. But that does not explain away the terror that the prophets exemplify when they fall on their face before God over and over and over in Scripture. And when Moses sees God, sees the back of God, and is afraid. When he sees, when we see the mighty works of God in the Scripture, and the people are afraid, and the nations tremble at the rumor of this God. They don't even see him, and they tremble at the rumor of him. We don't, we don't mask that. Theology starts at Jesus first. And understanding Jesus first. The loving mercy of God given to us. But as we dig, we see the justice, the wrath, the fury, the power, all manifest in the presence and nature and character of Christ. Jesus first. So he's filled with the spirit of knowledge and of fear. And then verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That is a wacky thing to say. But this is where we own our crazy. This is absurd to say. My delight is in the fear of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say my delight is in his hand, my delight is in his presence, my delight is in his work, my delight is in his covering. He says my delight is in the, Jesus' delight was in the fear of the Lord. In other words, we want to know this God so well that we understand that we ought to be a little afraid in his presence. And Jesus models for us that delight is found in that fear. In knowing Him so well that we understand the fear. Jesus models this for us here. His delight is in fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what His eyes see or decide disputes by what His ears hear, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So we've got this statement of his judgment. Jesus says of this of himself that I do not judge um, with eyes like you, but I judge the heart. I don't judge the outside. I judge the heart of man. He uh, makes this statement about judging the heart, what's inside the man. And this is what we have exemplified here in the character of Christ. He, he doesn't judge us from our external actions. Your hands are not what he judges. Rather, your heart is what he judges. And as you know from studying scripture, the hands are an overflow of the heart, just like a mouth is an overflow of the heart. And so at some point, no matter how good you are at hiding your, your actions, hiding your heart behind good deeds, eventually it's going to come out. This is the reality of life. And Jesus doesn't have to wait for the evidence to know what's inside. While we stand and we wait for the evidence, we wait to see what's going to play out in somebody's life, Jesus doesn't have to wait. He can look at you and He can say, I know who you are. 
all the way at your core. And again, that's terrifying. And it ought to make us go, you know who I am and I'm still yours? You know who I am and you still want me? I know who I am. I know that my my actions eventually display who I am. And that most people don't see the evidence. But you know who I am and you've changed my heart from the inside and given me a new heart. You've taken my heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, taken my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and you sprinkled me with clean water and you constantly clean me according to Colossians chapter 3. You are constantly cleaning me off and I'm constantly in your presence. And Lord, you are magnificent. So he sees and he judges. And then look at what he says here in verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. I really think that probably ought to be translated judge for the poor on behalf of the poor. Because that's what it's getting at. It's getting at Jesus is going to set everything right. The poor and the oppressed and the broken and the lame are going to be shifted. They're going to be changed. They're going to be bound up. They're going to be taken care of. They're going to be lifted up from the ground. It's like what Jesus says to the Pharisees, my broken you have not bound up. My lame you have not healed. And he stands before the religious institution in the Gospel of Luke and says, I'm going to tear everything down. And then I'm going to build it up in three days. He's talking about his body and the Pharisees are like, it took 70 years to build this temple. And Jesus is so mad, I just imagine him going, and walking off. Because they don't get it. And it's in, the, it's in that same picture, right, where the, the widow puts her, her might in the thing, and the Pharisees have been walking by, clanging their coins in, plong, 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 and she comes in, peek. And Jesus goes, I tell you, she's justified, and you're not. And they turn to him, and they kind of scornfully look back at him, and he goes, I'm going to tear every piece of this religious nonsense down. Not a stone will be left. And then I'll build it back up in three days. So we see this king who's going to flip the kingdom on its head, and the poor will be lifted up, and the broken will be taken care of, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Oh, we see injustice now. We see injustice now, and the kingdom of God will not suffer that injustice forever. Indeed, in Christ now, we can look past the failings of others to lift up the weak and the broken and the lame and provide for them in Christ now as Christians. We are able to love and take care of our neighbors. We are able to provide for the broken, to help them Maybe not in full. Maybe not completely. But one day, everything will be completely set right. And God will lift up the broken and the lame and the poor. Through His church, He's doing that now as a sign and a symbol of what is going to come. And Christians stand in righteousness And God is exalted in their work. 
And then it says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I read this quote this week by um, a scholar, a old scholar named McLaren. It says, Jesus' bare word has the power to kill and make alive. Jesus' bare word, plain word, has the power to kill and make alive. And is this not a divine prerogative? And does it not belong to him in the fullest sense to him whose voice rebuked fevers and storms and demons and pierced the dull, cold ear of death? Jesus' word alone will set the world right. And this is what we see in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes back and lands on the Mount of Olives and it's over. There's no war. It's amazing. The armies of the world amass to do war and wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb lands on the mountain and the battle's over. It, there's not even a contest. They're not even, it's not even, they, everybody falls. That's what happens. He shows up and he's like, I'm done. And they just, whoop, it's over. All these climactic battle scenes we see in movies where the hero rides down in victory and there's this epic war going on and they've got this battle and he's almost going to lose and then he steps in and he wins. That's not how this is written. This story is the battle amasses and the armies of the world amass against the Lamb and the Lamb lands on the mountain and everyone's done. Everyone goes, sorry, and falls down. And those who are not in the Lamb's Book of Life get cast into outer darkness immediately. And those who are get redeemed and rescued. This is incredible. So, this is our, our king who, by his sheer word, will correct everything. Righteousness shall be the belt of his weight, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And I was once asked um, about sympathy for people who are not going to be saved. And I, and I said, I have sympathy now, but at the end of time, we're going to see the righteousness of Jesus we're going to understand what mercy is fully, and we're going to go, none of us deserve it. None of us earned it. Jesus is absolutely right in this decision. Those who are condemned, it is absolutely right. There is no wavering or second guessing. None can say to him, what have you done or stay his hand? He is God. He is God Almighty. So Jesus here is righteous. And righteous, he rules with the rod of his mouth. And righteousness is what he binds himself up with. So that's our first character in this chapter. Our second character is the kingdom. Let's look at that just real brief because it's really kind of crazy. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together. So let's start there. 
These are animals that are domesticated, that are kept, and these are their predators. In the ancient Near East, lions would kill cattle. Cattle are big and slow and filled with meat. So lions would kill them. They'd take one, they'd kill it off. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched a old Hallmark Western. You know what I'm talking about? The one where the guy is like, he's a rancher, but he was a lawyer, and now he goes back to the ranch, and now he's got to raise cattle on the land. There's always some cattle getting killed by some wolf, and they have to show the guy as like a hero at some point, so he shoots a wolf. It's Hallmark, so it's dumb. But everybody understands what's going to happen, right? I want to say that because it's Christmas and everybody's watching, right? So the cow dies. He finds the dead cow in the field. You see the sympathy for the cow. And then he you know, finds the wolf and kills the wolf. And the woman's like, oh, he's a man. You know, it's... <laughs> Hallmark, right? So, so that's, but that's the, the picture here is that reality that we live in where there are predator and prey no longer exists. It doesn't exist. It's one of those things where if you're in this kingdom and you're a rancher, somebody might go, why don't you build a fence to protect your cattle? And you go, why? Nothing's there to hurt it. Nothing's there to hurt the property. No one's going to steal. No one's going to pillage. Nothing's going to break anything. The creation is going to operate in harmony at every level. And it says, And a little child shall lead them. Look at what the little child is leading. Lions and wolves and leopards, and goats, and lambs, and cattle together. A little kid is doing that. A child shall lead them. Verse 7, The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. I've never seen a bear eat grass. It's weird. Cattle and the bear evidently are grazing together in the field together. I mean, I've seen a panda eat grass. I suppose that would count. Maybe they're all pandas. I'm, the point is that this is insane. This is crazy. The bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child Play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. That's a viper. Put his hand in the adder's den. And shall they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you've got this beautiful picture of the child shall play in the hole with snakes. And the snake won't hurt it. And the, the kid will stick his hand in the hole of the snake and the snake's not going to hurt him. And he's going to be... This is harmony with everything on the earth. The enemy of God, the snake, is... The, the image of that enemy is suddenly made right. Suddenly made right. Because... The true enemy is defeated in this righteous king who sets this kingdom up. And then it says here at the end, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. That's important imagery. Because in the Old Testament, the sea implies everything that is unknown. Everything that's unknown and terrifying, all the weight of judgment and unrighteousness landing on us, that sea covers the whole earth. And so now we have this picture of the knowledge of the Lord covering like the sea. So there is no more unknown. There's no more unknown. Everything gets known. God is knowable. He's present. And we can know Him. And we can talk to Him. And be a part of Him. We get a glimpse of this as Christians. We can know Jesus. And we can know God. And we can, we can know the fullness of Him through the Word of God. We can study His Word and we can see it. But there will be a day when He is physically present and all of creation will cease its groaning. And the sons of Adam will be revealed, as Paul says in Romans. The sons of Adam will be revealed, and God will walk with us. Again, physically, we will see it. So you've got this kingdom here. You've got the king, and you've got the kingdom. And then in verse 10, it starts our picture. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner... For the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I love that that picture. He he will stand as a banner for the people, as a signal, as a, a Jehovah Nisi, right? As as the banner of God, Yahweh, the my banner, my flag. I don't know if you've ever seen. Um, well, I know that probably everybody in here has. There's these movies where somebody, the, the enemy is advancing, and somebody runs up and gets a flag and starts waving it back and forth, and all of a sudden, everybody gets charged up and rah, and they charge the battlefield and they win. And it goes back to this idea that they all see the flag waving, and they charge the battlefield and they overcome the enemy. There's one great scene in uh, The Patriot where Mel Gibson, who's the main character, sees that the line is faltering and he's about to have his vengeance for his son's death and he sees that the line is faltering he sees the flag has fallen on the ground. So he stops his own personal vendetta and runs over to the flag on the ground, picks it up and starts waving and it's one of the goofiest but greatest scenes ever in a movie because He has a gun, and it's pointed at the bad guy. It makes perfect sense to go, and then go do that, right? Would have taken him a split second. But he he doesn't. He drops his gun, and he runs over, picking up the flag, realizing that if the troops keep retreating, they're going to lose the battle. And they might lose the war. So in this pivotal moment, he picks up the flag, and he starts waving it, and screaming, and everybody turns, they all see it, and they go, oh, and it flashes to a bunch of faces going, oh, we're supposed to... And they turn around and they charge and they overcome the British forces and America was born because Mel Gibson waved a flag. Right? It's amazing. It's incredible. The picture here of Jesus being the signal is as long as we're looking at the banner, we're going to advance. As long as we have our eyes focused on the banner, we're going to advance. And he's a signal for the people. And nations will come to inquire about him. And his resting place 
will be glorious. So we get this beautiful picture in the Gospel of Luke where there's a straw manger and there's a baby in it. And his resting place is glorious. A food trough. It's glorious. And why is it glorious? It's not glorious because of the resting place. It's glorious because of the, the person that's in it. And the nations come to inquire of him. Wise men from nations beyond travel great distances to inquire of Jesus. And we see this picture in Luke, this image of God himself coming to earth and nations seeing the banner and coming to inquire of it. And that's one mountain peak as we stare out across this prophetic vision. And then beyond that, there's another mountain peak, and it's when Jesus lands, and he overcomes everything, and sets up this kingdom. In Revelation 19 and 20, and he lands, and he's got a, a, a name on his thigh. He's got a rope, and he's got fire coming from his eyes, and a sword coming from his mouth. And this is the same picture of Isaiah, chapter 11, right here, where he's got this rod of his mouth that crushes and destroys his enemies, and and he's got this piercing word that changes everything, and he judges with equity. Beautiful picture, echoed, and his resting place is glorious, and he's a king. And he stands as a signal. And nations come because he has landed. And he rules. Verse 11, in that day the Lord will... So you had the first in that day in verse 10. And then you have the second in that day here in verse 11. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. I would like you to know that I practiced those names. And since we're small in number this morning, I feel confident saying that and asking for a bit of praise. So, for a second time, he's going to recover his people. This is one of the most self-aware points in any of Isaiah's prophecies. He looks out at the prophetic line of history and he goes, Oh, there's two. Oh, there's, he's going to do this again. He did it back in Egypt. He's going to do it again. There might be more. This is God's pattern with his people. He brings them and rescues them and, and brings them and saves them. This is his pattern. So he says a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from all these lands. And he lists off all these lands. I want you to think about these lands as though you were in the ancient Near East in Israel, in Judah hearing Isaiah talk. He doesn't say Europe and Asia and and Russia. He doesn't say those because nobody knows those exist. Nobody in that land understands that those things are there. Their view of the world is is what he's describing. And this is the furthest out they can go. This is the furthest out they'll know. So he describes everything they'll know. And what he describes is not Israel's safe places, not their cousins, not even 
the uh, not even eat like not even Edom, not even on the other side of the Jordan. He's describing distant, scary lands. And then he says, God's going to bring His people back to a unified location, to a unified place. From all these scary adversaries, he's going to bring them back and recover them and take care of them from Assyria, from Elam, from Cush, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from, just in case you didn't understand that it's everything, the coastlands of the sea, the great unknown, he's going to bring everybody back, even from the edge of the unknown. Even from the edge of the unknown, he's going to bring them back. And then we have this beautiful poetic picture of what's happening here. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What a beautiful picture of the redemption of God. Look at what he says. He will raise a banner. The banner, verse 10, Jesus. He will raise a banner. Jesus says this of himself. When I am lifted up, I will draw him into myself. He becomes a banner by being nailed to a cross. He is the banner. He will raise a banner for the nations and will assemble the banished, the, the banished of Israel, those who have been kicked out of the kingdom, those who have been Rejected, he will assemble together. He will call them together. He will gather the dispersed, those who have been forced and driven away from where? From the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. So the cousins of Israel who have been envious of Israel, no more. No more will there be envy or or jealousy. Isn't that great? It's not that there's not just going to be no more death and no more dying and no more pain, right? There's more here. Like, our hearts will be right. Completely. Do you... I mean, the influences that drive us to jealousy and envy will be gone. We will be made right in the Lord. Ephraim and those who harass Judah shall be cut off, and Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. I love that picture of, it's almost like God gives his people an air force to do war with a bunch of people who don't have one. The Philistines are the enemies of God, the Ammonites are the enemies of God. And he gives them this air force that will swoop down and destroy, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongues of, I'm sorry, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. Did you catch that? The tongue of the sea of Egypt. The sea, that which is unknown, ruled by that which is wicked. Egypt. The sea, which is unknown, ruled by that which is wicked, who is trying to rule by their tongue. Who are they copying? Who are they copying? 
They're copying our God, who rules over everything and nothing is unknown. And he rules by what? His word. So here, they will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand. He'll wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and will lead people across in sandals. This is the image of the great river that Egypt claimed victory over, that claimed to own. And God says, you no longer get control over this. This is now for everybody. Seven. It becomes this perfect river of distribution in God's hands. And he will lead his people, he will lead people across in sandals, meaning on dry ground. They don't have to take off their sandals to keep them from getting wet. They get to walk across on dry ground again. Because God puts our feet in firm places and we walk on dry ground. And then finally, verse 16, and this is glorious, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. The way is narrow that leads to life. It is straight. And it goes from death Assyria, the picture of death and sin and evil, and it goes from death to life in Jesus Christ. And we walk that way because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he says, the remnant that remains for his people will walk this highway as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. God will make a way in the desert that you would be redeemed and saved and rescued. So Isaiah here in this passage gives us an image of a prophet who looks across at the mountain and sees these multiple peaks. And we get to rejoice that we have seen his glorious place as rest, his, his resting place as glorious. We get to rejoice that we have seen him raised up as a signal for us, as a banner for us, to obey and follow, and we need to rejoice that in time he will set up a kingdom here. Now there's more to that discussion. There's a lot more about the millennial kingdom and about the, the second coming of Christ and how that all looks, and that gets played out in a couple different places in the Old Testament and a couple different places in the New Testament. But I want you to, to just... For today, enjoy the view of the mountain. Just for today, don't get bogged down in where the peaks are and when they land and what they are. But enjoy the view of the mountain. His, glorious, his resting place is glorious. And in the Gospel of Luke and John, we see that his resting place is glorious because he is in it. And then... We see that he's raised up like a banner. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that he is the banner, the king that stands that we can follow 
And in Luke, he is our high priest and our, and our, um, our intercessor who walks with us to correct our religious assumptions and change who we are. And then in the Gospel of John, he's our high priest and our sacrifice, our perfect lamb who has come before us. And in Mark, he is God-made man who has walked with us on this earth, conquering everything on the world and we, in the world, and we see Jesus, the mountain in Isaiah 11, being described over and over and over and just for a moment rejoice in that. I tried my best to consider what a person who heard Isaiah's prophecy, believed in Jesus, and waited would say. So here's my attempt at looking at the mountain and rejoicing in Jesus. What will I say on the day when the heavens split and the earth ceases decay? When my Lord returns and answers our yearning, hope-filled wandering with His eternal justice and mercy? What song will I sing? Will it be long? the expression of my own belonging to a kingdom free and unshackled from the grip of the enmity of death? What stance will I take on that day when He sets right all justice, when He walks among us and we, set, we see the fruit of trust? Will I be face down on the ground as I began, as I began in the dust? What will I say on that day when in the face of forgiveness I am lifted from prostrate death and gifted favor by the hands of my King who comes in majesty? I will say, there He is on that day. On that day I will sing how His love has covered me and for us all has been clean lifting us from the dust to stand in, in that stance, I will raise my hands, for He has raised them. And all I will say is, look, see, and be amazed. Here comes my King. 